Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, one of three Dan Kims at, on staff here at Christ Central. Today we'll be kicking off our summer psalm series. It's my privilege to preach God's Word today. And today's passage comes from Psalm 96, verses 1 through 9. Please give your full, undivided attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we pray that by hearing your word today in this psalm, that you would help us to see your infinite worth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I'm officiating officiating a wedding after the processional, I'll usually say something along the lines of, friends and family, we are gathered here today in the presence of God to join together Jane and John in marriage. Marriage is sacred because God chose marriage to be an emblem of the union existing between Jesus and his bride, the church. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into lightly, but reverently, lovingly, and in the fear of God. The reason why I share that during a wedding is not because the people in attendance forget why they're there, but it's easily forgotten the gravity and seriousness and weightiness of marriage, because marriage is sacred. And in the same way, I could say something every Sunday along the lines of, brothers and sisters, we're gathered here today in the presence of God to worship God. Worship, therefore, is not to be entered into lightly, but reverently in the fear of the Lord. I could say that not because you all forget why you're here to worship, but we can forget who it is we are worshiping, how worthy he is, and the gravity of what it means to praise God. In this psalm, verse 9, it says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The first point this morning is this. The holiness of God sets the tone of worship. Splendor of holiness, that phrase, it can be translated as attire of holiness. Our worship, in other words, should be clothed in God's holiness. What does that mean? When we hear the word holy, a lot of times we think of moral perfection or moral purity, and that's absolutely true. God is morally pure and perfect, but more broadly speaking, the word holy simply means set apart or set above. So for us to worship God, and this is the way We ought to worship God the way that God wants to be worshipped is in the splendor of his holiness, which means that when we worship God, we are to acknowledge how set apart, how set above he is. 
And by set apart, we're not talking about distance. We're talking about greatness. Verse 4, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. That word great is used twice in that verse. And what that word means is to be great in significance and great in intensity. So to put it another way, what this verse is saying is the intensity of our worship should match the significance of God. The intensity of our worship should match the significance of God. In other words, worship is, not, is never casual. Worship is serious and intense because God is significant and great. Now, this doesn't mean that worship has to be somber and what it means to be intense. It doesn't mean you have to be jumping up and down. Intense worship is intentional and it is thoughtful. The third commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. That word vain means empty or weightless. This means whenever we are praying to God, talking about God, praising God, it should never be done thoughtlessly or carelessly. But this isn't always the case. We can be very careless, actually, and very casual when we worship God. Why is that? Verse 4 says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Our attire in worship can be casual here at CCSC. We're, we're quite casual in our dress, and that's totally cool. But our attitudes should never be casual when we come to worship God. This verse says that God is to be feared and revered above all gods, and that's the seriousness, intentionality, and intensity that ought to mark our worship but the reality, that isn't always the case. And why is that? According to John Calvin, it's because our hearts are idle factories. And based on that, I want to make a couple points about worshipers. You and I as worshipers. And the first point is this. The fall didn't affect our ability to worship. It affected the object of our worship. No one here is any better at worshiping than anybody else? I know maybe when you look at the pastors or the praise team, you think they're really good at worshiping God. They are the worship professionals, but that is untrue. As image bearers of God, we are all equally experts at worshiping, and we are always worshiping something really well. It's either God or something else or someone else. The fall didn't affect our ability to worship. It only changed and altered the object of our worship. We worship what we believe to be great. We all do this. Success, status, romance, money, popularity. And we not only believe them to be great, but we believe those things to be greater than God. Our sin has this uncanny ability to take something that is quite small in comparison to God and then magnify it and then make it look like it's so much bigger than God. And when God looks small, our worship to him shrinks. Our intensity in our worship to him shrinks. Our thoughtfulness diminishes the second point about worshipers, you and I, we only worship 
what we think is worthy. In Q1 of this year, Netflix reported a loss of 200,000 subscribers. This was the first subscriber loss in more than 10 years. What was the reason for that? Earlier this year as well, Netflix, they raised their subscription rates. Maybe some of you were up in arms about that. And you would ask, what would it take for them to lose 200,000 subscribers? Did they raise their rates by like five or 10 bucks? Did they double it? No, they raised their rates by like a dollar and a dollar fifty. And they lost 200,000 subscribers. You see, it doesn't take much for us to determine that something isn't worth it anymore. And another reason for that is that there are so many other subscription services that people say, well, Netflix isn't worth it. I'll just continue or subscribe to something else. With so many other streaming options, 200,000 people, maybe some of you here, decided that Netflix isn't worth it. As image bearers, we are constantly assessing whether or not something is worthy or worth it, worth our time, worth our energy, worth any sacrifice. And we do the same with God. We do the exact same thing with God. We are constantly, all of us, assessing whether or not God is worthy, whether or not he is worth it. There are so many other idle options out there that we believe give us greater value, give us more pleasure, more happiness, more meaning in life. And it does not take much for us to believe that those are more worth our worship and energy and sacrifice and money than God. In the book of Malachi, God calls out the Israelites for offering him lame and sick animals. Why did they do that? Because they were poor? No. They didn't do that because they were poor. The reason wasn't economics. But they were doing calculations in their mind and their heart. They were calculating the worth of these animals, and then they were calculating the worth of God, and then they determined that God is only worth this much. Lame and sick animals. In Malachi 3.14, God calls them out and he says, you have said it is vain to serve God. God knows their heart. This word vain means empty. We could say, what they were saying is, it's not worth it to serve God. That's what they were saying. They did all the math They did all the calculations, and they said, it's not worth it to worship God. I mean, they still offered animals, just not the best. For many of us, God is still worth some worship. He's still worth it. He's still worthy enough for us to at least come out to church on a Sunday. But the quality of that worship the heart behind that worship, the thoughtfulness and intentionality that we give God, it could be equivalent to lame and sick animals. And maybe the reason that is the case for you is because you've done the calculations and you would say, it is vain to serve God. It's not worth giving God that much of my heart, mind, energy, life. 
What we give God, what you give God, is how you view God. Directly correlated. We offer exactly what we think is deserved, no more and no less. That's how we are hardwired. So let me ask, what does that say about your view of God? What does your worship say about how worthy God is? And I'm not trying to guilt trip you. I do want to convict you, and I'll be the first to say this about myself. I would never want anyone to measure the worthiness of God based on my worship. If people used me as a measure of the worthiness of God and the way I worshiped God, it would not do God's worthiness justice. And I'll be the first to say that. What is the deeper issue here in Malachi? What's the deeper issue in our hearts? When we recognize this deeper issue, only then can we find the solution. The issue was this. The Israelites offered blind animals because they were blind to the greatness of God. The word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. That's what worship is. Recognizing and celebrating that which is worthy. And in the Bible, the word ascribe means to give someone what they deserve. In verse 8, this word ascribe is used. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. But we can't do that if we're blind to the glory of God. J.I. Packer says this. This is knowledge which Christians today largely lack. And that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. If a lack of knowledge is a reason why our worship is so flabby, then we need to commit ourselves to learning about the glory of God. This psalm gives us two reasons why God is so glorious. And I hope that this morning that these two reasons would begin to open our eyes to the greatness of God so that we would no longer say ever it is vain to serve God. It's not worth it. The second point is this, and this is what the psalm teaches us. God is holy in creation. God is set apart When we look at creation, here are some astonishing facts about the stars. The closest star to Earth after the sun is Proxima Centauri, 4.24 light years away. And if you're in a space shuttle that travels at 5 miles per second, which is quite fast, it would take 157,000 years to reach it. I thought the flight to Philly was bad. In our Milky Way galaxy, which is about 100,000 light years wide, and you can calculate how long it would take to travel across that, there are about 100 to 400 billion stars. So the closest star takes 157,000 years, and then there are 100 to 400 billion other stars. The nearest galaxy to our galaxy, 25,000 light years away, it would take 930 million years to reach it. I don't even know what that means. It's so big. And that's the nearest galaxy. And there are possibly 100 billion galaxies in the universe, each with hundreds of billions of stars. That is astonishing. Our star, the sun, is quite powerful. We know this. A single solar flare is equivalent to 2.5 million nuclear bombs. Verse 5 says this. 
For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The psalmist is highlighting that God is exclusively the creator, and what he created is so big. It is so vast. It's so mind-blowing that that's how we should view God. He is so big. He is so vast. He is so mind-blowing and deserving of our worship when we consider that all the galaxies cannot contain God. All of the stars, the billions and billions of stars and all their brightness combined are a dim measure compared to the glory of God. That all of the suns and their energy and heat combined would be cool to the touch in comparison to the power of God. And it's not just idols that we think are so great. Often we think we're so great. We call that pride. The idol of self. Because of earthly success, status, wealth, gifts, talents, we can have such an inflated view of ourselves that we begin to think less of God. One author wrote that pride cannibalizes all. And that's so true. You won't be in awe of God if you're so full of yourself. This psalm reminds us that God is bigger. Bigger than you. Bigger than your ego. Bigger than your success. Bigger than the heavens. Bigger than the universe. Isaiah 40.12 says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. When we consider the greatness of God in creation, it withers our pride and puts us in our place. And what is that place? It could sound like the significance of God is to make us feel insignificant, but that's not the point. It's not to make us feel insignificant, it's to make us feel humble. And there's a difference. This humility is a good thing. Let me explain it this way. If someone of little worldly status knows your name, you don't feel that special. For example, you don't feel that special if I know your name, but if Steph Curry knows your name and knows you personally, you would feel really special. If you have his phone number in your phone and you can text him whenever you want, you'd feel really special rather than having Pastor Dan's cell phone number number in your phone. Psalm 8, 3 to 4 says this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This great creator God knows you, cares about you, the combination of God's eminence, which is his nearness, and his transcendence, which is his greatness, is vital for worship. This psalm makes sure to celebrate both. The greatness of God and the nearness of God. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven. 
the nearness of God as your loving, caring father, you as his child, but he is in the heavens. He's also great. That combination is worthy of our worship. In this psalm, Lord is used eight times in nine verses, but the word Lord here isn't the word for Lord that we think of. The word Lord, whenever it's in all caps, is God's covenantal personal name, Yahweh, which is I am who I am. This is God's personal name, and he's revealing it to his people, to you. God is personal and he is powerful. And so it says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. How does God use his might? We just talked about how great he is, how powerful he is. But that alone doesn't move us to worship. God's strength alone doesn't move us to worship. It's the fact that he's so powerful but personal. Isaiah 40 speaks so beautifully about how God uses his might. Let me read this for you. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. How does he use it? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. That's how God uses his great power to carry his people, to save his people, to bear your burden. This great, powerful God is on your side. He is for you. He knows you. And it says that he saves, which brings us to our next point. God is not only holy in creation, but God is holy in salvation. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. No one saves. God is holy in the way he saves. No one saves the way that God saves. No one can do what God has done in salvation. God exclusively is the Savior. For the Israelites, the greatest salvation event was when God delivered them out of Egypt. And after doing so, he gave them the Ten Commandments. And I want to spend a little time unpacking that. The context of the Ten Commandments. It's so important we understand it. Because there are many who have been believers for a long time or who are new believers. And it could feel like that Christianity, having a relationship with God, is all about do's and don'ts. It's all about commandments and laws. It's all about rules. And whenever we lean that way, you know what we're going to end up saying? It is vain to serve the Lord. It's not worth worshiping him. Because it's so burdensome. If we feel like Christianity and having a relationship with God, it's about keeping up with certain standards in order to get God to love us, to care for us, to do things for us, it's going to be vain to serve God. You will feel that way, man. Maybe some of you feel that way this morning, but that is not the context of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are actually patterned after ancient covenants, and covenants were treaties between two parties. And these covenants were consisted of four things. Introductions, historical survey, stipulations, blessing, and curse. In other words, they introduced each party. 
Who are the two parties of this treaty? And then a historical survey. Basically, what has each party done and what are they bringing to the table? And then stipulations. The terms of the covenant, a.k.a. the Ten Commandments. And then the blessings and curses. If you keep the stipulations and there are blessings, if you break them, then there are curses. And the Ten Commandments are patterned after ancient covenants. And what's really interesting is if we look at Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, we actually learn a lot about how God saves. Let's look at Exodus 20, 1-3. There's the introduction and historical survey. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then in verse 3, it goes into the stipulations, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Many of us, we think Christianity in the gospel starts with verse 3. Do's and don'ts. If you miss verses 1 to 2, you miss the gospel altogether. In the introduction and historical survey, who is not mentioned? The Israelites are not mentioned. Why is that? Because they have done nothing in the past, and they bring absolutely nothing to the table. In the historical survey, it is God alone who saves. He is the one who initiates. He is the one who has has done all of the work, and that is the gospel. That in the gospel, God alone saves. We who were slaves to sin, dead in our guilt, undeserving of God's love. And yet God saved us, not by sending ten plagues, but by sending his one and only son. God saves us not by parting the Red Sea, but by Jesus being torn apart on the cross, bearing our guilt and our sin, taking upon himself the righteous wrath and judgment of God so that we could be saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. There is no other religion, no other philosophy or belief system that saves in this way. God is holy in salvation. The psalmist is in awe of this salvation. Practically, how can we grow in our awe of God and his work in salvation and then grow in our worship? The answer might surprise you. We grow in our worship by worshiping. What do I mean by that? God's saving work is actually modeled in our liturgy every Sunday. By liturgy, we mean the order of worship. It's actually designed to be a gospel rehearsal that reminds, of us, reminds us of who God is and what he has done. And I wanted practically to walk us through the gospel rhythm of our worship service. And this might actually be new to you. And if it is, it's great that you're learning it. And I hope that it encourages you to engage in worship even more. So our worship service, it begins with the call to worship. This is so important. And I want to encourage you to not miss the call to worship. And I'm going to say this not to make people feel bad, but I think people don't think the call to worship is very important, which may explain why there are like 10 people here at 10 a.m. Right on the dot, that's when we start our worship service. Be honest. 
you probably don't think it's that important. Most people think, well, if I make a couple of the songs and as long as I hear the sermon, I'm good. The worship service is so much more than just songs in a sermon. There is an intentional gospel rhythm and design to the liturgy so that you would grow in your awe of God. And missing this on a weekly basis may explain why you lack awe of God. Maybe one of the reasons why. And so in the call to worship, as Pastor Andrew did so well, he reminds us, it is God who calls us to worship. He is the one who initiates us to worship him. He invites us to worship. Just like how in the gospel, it is God who initiates by his grace. God who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We who are sinners. And maybe you had like the worst week as a Christian. You felt like a failure as a mother or a father. Maybe you fell into the same sin over and over again. And this is why it's so important to hear the call to worship. God still calls you to come to him and to be near him. Even after the worst week that you may have had as a believer. You can come here on Sunday morning and hear God say, I invite you to be near me. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to fear rejection. I accept you in Christ. You are still my child. You will always have a place here. And that's the call to worship. We're humbled by the fact God wants me. Me. To be near me. To be in his presence where there is pleasure and joy forevermore. How do we respond to such undeserved grace? The next part of our worship service, praise songs. We respond in praise. This psalm says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. By new song, it means we write new songs, but also sing older songs with a fresh experience of God's mercy, which is why new mercies always leads to new, new music. And when the church is a singing church, there's an article that I read. The title was, Your Church Needs You to Sing. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Christ Central, we need you to sing. We do. God created singing not only to praise him, but to build up the body. It does something. We're ministering to one another when people can hear you sing. We're impressing the truths of the grace of God and the gospel upon each other's hearts and minds. And the Holy Spirit is using that. And when the whole church sings, it's like the gospel becomes surround sound. And that's beautiful and we need it. Why? Because there are so many voices in our heads whenever we come to church on Sunday. There are so many voices of fear. So many voices of anxiety and worry and guilt, and doubt. But when we gather the church, and the church sings, and the gospel truths are surround sound, it drowns out all of those other voices of guilt, fear, failure, and doubt, and points us to God, how big He is, how personal He is, His love, His faithfulness, His forgiveness. We need you to sing. Next in our worship service, we confess our faith 
as we just did in the Heidelberg Catechism. God instructs us with his word, and then we respond in reading the Catechism. And then we move on to the confession of sin. God calls us. Again, it's always God who initiates. He calls us to confess our sin, not to hide it, not to justify our guilt. And he calls us to confess our sin without fear of condemnation. For his perfect love casts out that fear. And so how do we respond? We respond with godly grief and repentance, not excuses. And then we receive the assurance of pardon. This is where God assures us of his pardon because of what Christ has done. And how can we not be in awe of God who so freely forgives our sins and covers our shame? Why do we need the assurance of pardon? Because even after confessing your sin here on Sunday, there's still lingering doubt. Maybe in your mind you're thinking, but I've done the unthinkable. Or I keep falling into the same sin. How could I possibly keep receiving forgiveness? And so we hear and receive this assurance of pardon is that even the unthinkable is forgivable. Even the most frequent of sins will be frequently forgiven and freely forgiven by God. And we need to hear that. And we need to be here for that. And how does one respond to forgiveness? Pastor Andrew shared earlier of what Jesus shared in the Gospel of Luke. He who is forgiven little, Jesus says, loves little. Loves God a little bit. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Those who know they have been forgiven much by God, they love God so much. So every Sunday we come here with our guilt, with all that baggage and junk and shame. We lay that before God and we hear that we are forgiven and then we love God. That a God would forgive me just like that. And he can forgive just like that only because of what Jesus has done for us. And then we hear the sermon. God speaks to us through the preaching of the word. And then we respond to God's word with praise. And then on the Sundays when we have the Lord's Supper, we are reminded visually of what Christ has done for us. His body broken on the cross. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we look forward to knowing that Jesus is going to return one day and make all things right and all things new, reconciling all of creation to himself. And how do we respond? Worship and praise as we are in awe of God and salvation. And then we receive the benediction. Don't miss that. God blesses his people and promises his peace and presence with them. Even through the darkest valleys and worst sins, God will never forsake us. And we are reassured of that at the end of service. And in response, we go and live faithful, obedient lives. You see, the call to be faithful and obedient comes at the very end. The motivation is after receiving and hearing all of God's grace, hearing everything that he has done for us, and then we respond with faithful and obedient living, not to earn God's love, but in response to it, because we're so in awe of him. So what's maybe the most practical thing you can do to grow in your awe and worship of God? One thing you can do is don't miss worship. Don't miss the call to worship. 
I know Sunday mornings can be quite crazy, especially if you have kids. I don't know what it takes for you to be here, and maybe it's really hard, and we're not going to judge people. You know, people are late or they can't make it. We get it. Life happens. But to make every effort to make sure that you're here to receive and to hear and to respond in worship, to engage your whole heart, mind, and strength in each worship element. When we sing, sing. I loved hearing you sing earlier. I need it. I need the gospel and surround sound. When we pray, pray. When the sermon is being preached, listen. When we repent, repent. And then receive the benediction. And you'll, you'll experience rich reminders of God's love and grace and forgiveness and be reminded of why he is worthy of our worship because of the splendor of his holiness. God is unlike any other God. God is like unlike anyone or anything else. Let me close with Isaiah 45, 21. This is God speaking. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that the intensity of our worship would match the splendor and greatness of who you are. We are in awe of your creation and more so of your work of salvation. God, you alone are worthy of our affection and all our praise. Week to week, Father God, show us more of your eminence and transcendence. Stir us to worship you in all your splendor. I pray this in Jesus' name.